Thanks, Colin. I, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I want to encourage you at the end of our service, we're going to take about a 30-second uh, break in there, and then we're going to have communion. And if you're a uh, believer, if you are a Christian, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we'd love to have you join with us. We believe in open communion, so uh, that means that we believe that anyone who is a child of God uh, can join with us. So uh, I want to encourage you, just let you know that uh, uh, that's, if you can't f keep with us, then that's fine, but uh, we'd love to have you join with us. Uh, this morning, I want to look at the Easter story. Easter focuses on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is important. It is integral to our faith. Uh, it is a big part of uh, what we believe, and it is at a core belief of what we believe. But I want to go back a few days before the resurrection, and I want to talk a little bit to lay some background for this day. And I want us to look at the issue of uh, the cross, and I want us to see some things that really help us better understand what Easter, what today is really all about. Because just as the resurrection is central to what we believe, so is the cross. So many of you know the story. You know the, 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 uh, the trials and everything that happened, and you know the story of, of Jesus going to the cross. But here's the thing. Most of us today, we in our culture have sanitized the cross. Uh, we've made it something that is pleasing to look at, but the reality of it is uh, the cross is anything but that. Uh, we have to understand that uh, during that day and time, no one wanted to be associated with the cross. Uh, the cross was a very um, ugly, uh, horrible uh, situation to look at. Um, no, no movie you have ever seen, uh, no picture you have ever seen painted of the cross can portray just how brutal and ugly it was. Uh, it was, I mean, you had everything, when someone was crucified, uh, you had everything from uh, birds that were trying to pluck the flesh off of the people who were dying. You had smells that uh, were unimaginable because many times people couldn't control uh, normal bodily functions. You had uh, people who would pass by and, and, and throw things or cuss and scream. You had people crying out in agony. You had families who were shattered. Uh, many would not even attend a crucifixion because they didn't want to be associated with this uh, because for them to be associated with it, then everyone would turn on them. Uh, let, me, let me give you an account. This is what one writer says. He says this. He said, for the Jews, the man staked firmly in the ground, completely exposed. His beard ripped out in chunks, was a rebellious, and worthless son, cursed by God. His death was warranted, and best for all, he was a shame to his people. To the Greeks, the public humiliation of the cross was punishment for worthless rebels and prisoners. They were barely human scum, a blight on the empire, and they, des they deserved extermination. According to Rome, the degradation and death of a low-life vermin was good riddance and an effective deterrence. You see, no one wanted to be associated with death on a cross. I mean, today, we, we take the cross and we put it on jewelry and we, we put it on bumper stickers and we hang it in our churches. But the reality of it was, in that day, no one wanted to be associated with a cross. 
I, I tell people the modern day parallel would be if, if I took a piece of jewelry and had, had a jeweler make me a, a, an electric chair, and I took that piece of jewelry and I started wearing it around my neck, or made a logo for my business of an electric chair, or maybe uh, the table that they use when they use lethal injection, and I were to start hanging that around my neck and putting those things in my place of business, you would look at me and you would say, who wants to be associated with that? And yet, that was the reality of the cross. It was an extreme form of uh, deterrent and, and, and public humiliation. And so we need to understand that when we talk about Jesus going to the cross, it is an incredibly horrible and ugly thing. Um, this morning, what I want us to focus on as we lay some background is I want us to talk about the words of Jesus from that cross. He's in extreme pain. He's in extreme agony. Uh, he has endured all kinds of things. And yet, on the cross, we learn an awful lot about him and an awful lot that prepares us for the resurrection that's to occur a few days later. There are seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross as we put the gospel accounts together. The first thing that we have Jesus uttering from the cross has the idea of forgiveness. Um, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first thing that you see from Jesus at the cross is that he's concerned about forgiveness for, for, for people. The next thing you see is there are two criminals crucified on both sides of him, and one of them wants to follow him. And he's actually concerned for his soul, and he says to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. We then find a third statement from Jesus on the cross, where he looks down and he sees his mother, and he talks about, Behold, my, thy mother. And he's, it's the idea of the oldest son was responsible to care for the mother. And so in this particular thing, Jesus basically transfers that to someone else. Even in his pain, even in his agony, he's focused on other people. And then we see a time on the cross where the skies darken and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We'll talk about that in a moment, but basically it was a point, I believe, in history where the sins of the world were placed on Jesus and God the Father turns his back on God the Son. Martin Luther said it this way, God forsaken of God, how can I ever understand it? And then we see a very interesting statement from Jesus where he cries out, I thirst. Because you see, at this point in the crucifixion, Jesus had been dehydrated. He had lost a tremendous amount of blood, barely alive, and he cries out, I thirst, reminding us that he's no superhuman here. He's just simply a man as well as us, but he is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, hang on the cross, as we come to the very end of the cross, cries out to tell us die. It is finished. That's where we're going to spend our time talking this morning. But I want you to understand that at the end of the thing, Jesus cries out, to tell us die, it is finished. And then one of the writers says, he then says, into thy hand, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he willingly gives his life and takes his last breath. This morning, I want us to talk about that final statement, that final word of God which says, to tell us die, it is finished. What we have to do is we have to ask ourselves what's finished at that point. At this point in the story of the life of Jesus Christ, the suffering, the hardship, the struggle, it's done. He has endured all of it. You've, the scourgings, he has, he has endured the carrying 
uh, of the cross. He has been beaten. He's had a crown of thorns put upon his head. He's had the people that followed him and said they love him turn their backs on him. All of the things that Jesus has endured are now over. And he says, it's finished. Many of you struggle over all of the events over the last couple of weeks. Some of you struggle just even before this with different things that have come into your life. The grief, the hardship, the difficulties. What you need to understand is Jesus understands. There is no one who has experienced more hardship, more grief, more difficulty than Jesus Christ. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said it this way. He was a man acquainted with suffering, with much grief. He was a man of sorrows. Jesus knew what it was like to bear a heavy heart. And yet, on the cross, he's able to cry out to tell us die. It is finished. Not only do we see the idea of suffering and difficulty and hardship finished, but the incarnation is finished. Now, that's a big fancy word. Basically, incarnation is the idea that God became flesh. And for the first time, we have the idea that Jesus Christ no longer needed to do that. John, when he writes, uh, when Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John, here's what he says. <clears throat> for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. He says, you know what, you need to know that that. I have finished the works that my Father has given me to do. In Luke, he says it this way. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. We have in the life of Jesus Christ this idea that when he cries out on the cross, uh, John chapter 19, here's the, here's the passage that he talks about in John 19. It says, when he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. To tell us die. With that, he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. When Jesus cries this out, he's saying, the difficulty, the hardship, it's done. I've done the works that my Father has called me to do. And then, if you ever get a chance, go to the book of Hebrews. Read chapter 9, and it talks about all that was encompassed with the idea of he has finished the atonement for the sins of mankind. Now, that's an Old Testament idea. So let me give you a little bit of background. In the Jewish world, the Day of Atonement is one of the most sacred days in all of the Jewish religion. Throughout history, on the Day of Atonement, this is what would happen. It happened one day a year. And the high priest would come out into the temple area, into the court area. One of the things that would happen is they would bring two goats before the, the high priest. And he would cast lots. One of the goats would be sacrificed. The other goat would be, you've heard the term, the scapegoat. What would happen is the, the priest would take and confess all of the sins of the nation of Israel. He would then symbolically place those sins on that goat. Often they would tie a, a scarlet uh, uh, ribbon or something like that around the goat because they wanted that goat marked. And then what would happen is somebody would take that goat as far away as they could from the camp. And the idea was that the sins of the nation for that year were then taken away. And so what would happen is they would do that. Actually, later, they, the Jewish people got so scared that, that God forbid that that goat would come walking back into camp one day. So the, eventually what they did is they started actually taking it as far away as they could, and then they would push it off a cliff. 
That way they were sure that goat didn't, never came back. The other goat, they would take and they would, they would kill the goat. They would take the blood. The high priest would then go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. He would often go in with bells around his, uh, his robe. Uh, later, they would actually start tying ropes around his, his waist so that if he was unacceptable to God, God struck him dead, they were able to pull him out. Because it was such a holy day that everything hinged on him. And so in the, in the history of the Jewish people, in the Day of Atonement, the one thing that they looked forward to was the day that the priest came walking out of the Holy of Holies into the courtyard, and they could realize that God had accepted their sacrifice for that year. You need to understand, this is what Hebrews chapter 9 talks about. When Jesus walks out of the grave on that great resurrection morning, it is a testimony to all of the world that God has accepted his sacrifice. So as we celebrate this Easter morning, this fact that he has risen indeed, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that we have a God who has made an atonement for us. We celebrate the fact that tetelestai, it's finished. God has done what he set out and accomplished to do. People who have attended here for a while know that I am a visual learner. I, I love to learn things um, visually uh, uh, rather than, than reading a book. I would rather see it. So I, I'm a big fan of YouTube. If I need to go find out how to do something, I will often go to YouTube. And so I thought this morning, what I wanted to try to do was to illustrate this whole thing that we're talking about, of what it is that Jesus actually finished. So if you'll bear with me for a few minutes this morning, I'm going to try to give you a picture idea of what this looked like. So I'm going to use microphone stands, and I'm going to use a couple of towels, uh, what I want is I want this microphone stand to represent God. Now, we know a number of things about God. We know that God is pure. We know that um, God is righteous. We know that um, God is holy. We know that <clears throat> um, God has never sinned, never will sin. We know that um, he is uh, the righteous judge. We know that, that, that God is pure. What happens is God decides that he wants to create a man in his image. So what God does, and this is the story in Genesis, is God creates man. And so God now sets up his creation in a perfect world, somebody that he can fellowship with, and he creates man in his image, and he makes him righteous. He makes him holy. He makes him just like him. And so what happens is God and man are in perfect fellowship. They have an incredible relationship together. And this is what life as God intended. This is how God wanted the world to be. If you want to know what God had in mind, this is what God had in mind. But we know that Satan, the archenemy of God, did not like this. When God created man, the one thing that he gave man was the ability to choose. God didn't want a robot that would follow him. God wanted a man who would choose to be in a relationship with him. And so what happens is Satan comes along, and Satan starts tempting and testing man. And Satan comes along and says, all right, here's what you need to know. 
God's not telling you everything. God's keeping stuff from you. My way is better. If you will follow me, I will give you a better way. I will promise you all kinds of things that God can never give you. And so man is faced with a choice. And what man does is he decides that he no longer wants what God has offered to him. Instead, he wants that which Satan offers. So now man, and this is what the Bible talks about, man rejects God and man sins. So now we have man as a sinner and God as pure and righteous and holy. The problem is now God and man can't be together. So the Bible tells us that what God does is he casts Adam out of the Garden of Eden because now there is a gap between them. Because of man's sin, because man chose to sin, God can no longer have fellowship with him because God is pure and righteous and holy. So God starts to adopt a plan. And God comes up with a plan to make a way whereby he and God, man and God, can be together again. But the price is going to be high. It's going to be difficult. It's going to require a great sacrifice. So God starts preparing the world for the time that Jesus is going to come to this earth. Meanwhile, God illustrates to man throughout history that no matter what man does, he will never look like that again. No matter how much he tries to clean up, this, by the way, is a towel that has been washed. This is a clean towel, but it's still black. No amount of cleaning this towel up will make it white again. Why? Because it's sin. Because it's black. And so what has happened is it will always fall short. And that's what the Bible talks about. The idea that no matter what you do to clean this up, it's never going to be made white again. God is the only one who can do that. So what happens is God makes the plan in order to be able to come to mankind. So God, in flesh, the incarnation, the Christmas story, comes to the earth. And now God dwells here. And God dwells here for 33 plus years. And the entire time that God is here, he never sins. He never has an evil thought. He never loses his temper. He never all of a sudden... um, lies, cheats, steals, does anything wrong. He is absolutely sinless the entire time he's here. Now here's what's interesting because the Bible tells us that the only reason that we die is because of sin. So there is no reason for Jesus to die. There is no reason for Jesus to uh, die physically on this earth. He could have lived forever. But what Jesus decides to do is to willingly go to the cross in our place, the cross that we just talked about. He decides that he is willingly going to come to the cross, that going to willingly die on the cross. Now here's the thing. When he goes to the cross, remember, he doesn't have to die. So therefore, his righteousness, all of the things that, that, that he had done, his holiness, is now going to be put to the side. Because what he's going to do is, and this is what the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my sin, the world's sin, upon me. And my righteousness is now set off to the side. 
And so now he who knew no sin became sin. The problem is now he has to die. The Bible was very, very clear. The only way to take care of sin is the shedding of blood. Leviticus says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Jesus dies an incredibly bloody death. In order to take care of our sin, in order to pave a way so that we can be offered the righteousness of Christ. This is the Easter story. This is the Easter story that this is what God did. He had to pave a way so that we could be with God forever. So he takes upon him the sin of the world. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God became sin for us. He had shed his blood so that he has paid the price so that we can have eternal life. This is what the Bible talks about. When God said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What he says is, because God did this, he now can offer to you and I his righteousness. So what God does is he says this, if you will believe in me, for whoever believes in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's what I will do. I will take your sin. I will cover it with the blood of Jesus Christ. I will forgive it. I will then take my righteousness, and I will now give it to you. Now, when you die, now when you take your final breath, now when your heart beats for the last time and you stand before a holy, righteous God, you are accepted. It's not because of you cleaned yourself up. It's not because you went to church all your life. It's not because you gave a bunch of money or you were nice to a lot of people. It's because you have put your faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is so important that you understand. This is the Easter story. This is what Jesus did. This is what we celebrate. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. What he's saying is, I have prepared a way that everyone, whoever wants it, can now have the righteousness of Christ because I have paid for their sin. This is what we call salvation. This is what we call, some people call it putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It has all kinds of terms, but the idea is this. The idea is that you're not trusting in yourself when you stand before God. You see, the idea is that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Here's the thing. Some of you have done this, and you need to understand that we are able to celebrate this day because... It was finished because he finished the work that God gave him to do because he loved us enough to be willing to do this because he loved us enough to offer us salvation as a free gift so much so that even a thief on the cross who could never go to church never give a dime never do a nice thing for anybody could be with him that day in paradise it is so important that you understand this 
A lot of you who are watching have done this. But there are some of you that if you were to be honest with me this, this morning, and you were to be honest with me today, the reality of it is this. You think that you're okay. And you think that you can just clean up your life. And you think that you can do good enough stuff that you can stand before a holy God and he'll make an exception for you. It's so important that you understand this this morning. When Jesus was here, he said it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. The truth of the matter is, if you do not accept Jesus Christ, the Bible is explicitly clear on that day that you take your last breath and stand before an almighty God. God will say, depart from me. I don't know you. You say, Pastor, I can't believe that a loving God would do that. I can't believe that a loving God would cast us away. Let me be perfectly clear, and I don't want to be misunderstood here. A loving God endured the cross, provided a way, made a way that you and I can be with him forever and have a relationship with him from the moment we put our faith and trust in him the entire time we live on this earth. A loving God did that. That loving God, moments before he goes to the cross, prays between him and God and says, Father, if it's possible, if there is any other way, let this cup pass me. Lord, if there's any other way to go to, to take care of people's sins, then let's go to plan B. But if it's not possible, Lord, then your will be done. I will do what you need me to do if there's no other way. And God basically says, there is no other way. And if you think that a loving God who went to the cross for you, who paid for your sin, who endured everything that the Bible talks about him enduring, is then going to look at you on the day that you stand before him and say, you know what? I'm going to make an exception for you. I'm going to give you a pass. I'm going to let you do it another way. You are sadly mistaken. Because Jesus was explicitly clear. I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. No one gets to the Father but through me. The Easter story is about a loving God who provided a way and offers it to anyone. You say, Pastor, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. No, it doesn't matter. You say, are you, are you telling me that God forgives all of my sin, past, present, and future? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It is all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about it? When Jesus dies on the cross, all of your sin is future. But when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you become his child, and now you have a relationship. Not just when you leave this world. You have a relationship that starts now. You have a place to go. You have a shelter. You have a refuge. You have someone who will never leave you nor forsake you. You will never go through anything alone ever again in your life. Why? Because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of you who are watching this have done this. And I want to challenge you to understand how much God has done for you. And to never take it for granted. To never just gloss over it as if this was no big deal. This was a huge deal. 
Never let your salvation get old. Appreciate every day all that God has done for you and that he loved you and cared for you so much. Or for some of you, the reality of it is, as you watch this today, this is you. And unfortunately, if you take your last breath today, if, you, if your heart beats for the last time and you stand before God, this will not be your story. This will be your story. And it is our prayer, the reason that we are here is so that everyone watching, everyone who hears this message will understand that God offers that to anyone who will say yes. And if you're listening this morning and you have never done this, you go, I'm not a church person. You don't know what I've done. None of that matters. When I was a teenager in Detroit, Michigan, I did this. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And on that day, I started a relationship where God took care of my sin and God became my Lord and my Savior. And from that moment on, I was clothed, as the Bible talks about, in the righteousness of Christ. And I have a relationship with him, and I have every day since. My goal in my life is to honor him with my life. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a preacher. I'm not, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ because I'm a nice person. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ because there came a point in my life where I realized I was a sinner. I needed a Savior. I asked God to forgive me of my sin, to take my sin, to take my sin away, to cover my sin, to come into my life, to be my Lord and my Savior. And on that day, my relationship to the Lord changed forever. And he offers that to every one of us. And I challenge you today. If you've never done this, please, please make sure that you're ready to stand before him in his righteousness and not your own. As I close this morning, I can't help but believe as we face on many Easter services, the fact that there are people here who want to do this, but they don't know how. You don't have to be in church. You can do it in your living room. You can do it in your car. You can do it wherever you are right now. So if this is something that you want, and you're serious about it, you're not just looking for a ticket to heaven. You're looking to genuinely put your faith and trust in Christ alone. I'm going to pray in a moment. And I want you to pray. You don't have to use my exact words, but use the heart of what I'm saying. And, and, and it will help you. If, if, again, many people, you're not even, you don't know how to pray. You're not comfortable praying. Pray this in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I realize that I'm a sinner, and I realize that my sin has separated me from you. And Lord, I, I realize that I can't do anything. I can't pay for my sin on my own. But Lord, I realize that you have. So Lord, I'm asking that you would forgive me of my sin. I'm asking, Lord, that you would save me, that you would come into my heart, that you would, Lord, uh, Take care of my sin. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Lord, come into my heart and life. Lord, thank you for providing a way. Thank you for loving me enough to do that. And Lord, as best as I know how, this morning I am trusting you and you alone. Lord, help me to live in the days ahead, following you with my heart, 
my soul, my mind. And Lord, thanks for saving me. These things I ask in the great and precious name. Amen. You say, Pastor, I can't believe it would be that simple. It was simple enough that a thief on the cross could in the last moments of his life. And it's simple enough that you and I can put our faith and trust in him because of what he did. And if you've done that this morning, we would love to talk to somebody who comes to church here. Talk to somebody that you know that's a Christian, that's a Christ follower. Let them know. And let them encourage you as God has encouraged them in their journey. So this morning as I wrap things up, I go back to John chapter 19 and verse 30. It is finished. The cross, it was a horrible, dark, difficult time for God. God forsaken of God. I can never understand that. But God did that for us so that we could have a relationship with him. He loves you. He loves me more than we will ever know or ever comprehend. So please, make sure this day you have accepted his finished work. Allow him to give you a new purpose and a new meaning for this thing that we call life here and life with him forever in the world to come. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thanks for your death, your burial, and most importantly, Lord, for resurrection that proves that your sacrifice was accepted by God and that death no longer holds power. Lord, may our salvation never get old. Lord, work in our hearts. Use us this week so that as people see us, they may see Christ in us. And Lord, use us to share this message with the world. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Well, that wraps up my time with you today. Um, if you want to continue to watch, uh, we're going to take about a brief 30-second uh, pause here and uh, get ready for communion. And uh, we want to encourage you to join us as we celebrate, as we remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do this every week at our church because we don't want our salvation. We don't want what Jesus has done in shedding his blood and, and giving his body for us to ever get old. So we would encourage you, uh, even if you've just put your faith and trust in Christ this morning, to join with us. So Lord bless you. Uh, have a great week. Thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, before we have communion, I want to give you a little bit of background. And uh, I, I want to go, first of all, to the Jewish world. And I want to talk just for a second about uh, wedding proposal in the Jewish world. Because it lays some background. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a backdrop to this whole uh, issue of communion. 
Um, in the Jewish world, when someone wanted to get married, what they would do is the two fathers would get together, and they would negotiate a bride price. Now, it wasn't the idea of buying somebody. What happened is, in, in that culture, in that community, um, children had uh, an economic value to a family. If they were a male, they would work out in the fields often or with the, with the livestock. If they were female, they would take care of all of the things at the house uh, and providing for everything. So anytime a child left the home, uh, there, was an, there was an economic issue that would be in play. Consequently, whoever was going to the new home then benefited as well. So there was, there, there was a, a price associated with that in order to compensate the family for the value that they were losing. Um, and in some cases, the bride price was known as a bride price. In some cases, the bride price would be as, as high as uh, uh, the value of a house today. So in that culture, it was, a, it was an incredibly important deal. What would happen is the two fathers, like I said, the two fathers would get together, they negotiate the bride price. When, once that was agreed upon, the father of the groom would go to uh, his son. And what he would do is he would take a, a cup, uh, similar, he would take a cup, and he would take wine, and he would pour it into the glass, and then what he would do is he would take that and he would hand that then to his son. His son would then go to his future bride or the, or the person that he wanted to be married to, and he would then, walking towards her with the, with the cup, would basically reach the cup out and say, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which I offer to you. It was a way of saying to her, I want to marry you. I will, I, I will be with you for the rest of my life. I will give my life for you. Will you accept me? The bride now had a choice. She would either drink of the cup or she would refuse the cup. When she drank of the cup, she was saying, yes, I will be your wife. And so in the Jewish world, this was a very familiar, a very well-known ceremony. When we get to the Passover, that was another very well-known ceremony. Um, every Jewish person knew the Passover ritual. And what would happen is there would be a Passover meal before Passover, and it was, it was very, very structured. Um, in the Passover meal, for instance, there were four cups that were offered at various times throughout the meal. Um, the first cup uh, referred to the idea of Israel being taken out of Egypt. The second cup was a reminder that God would save them. The third cup was a reminder of um, uh, the redemption that would come. And then the fourth cup was a, was a promise, really, um, that God was going to take them as a nation. So throughout history in the Jewish world, everybody knows this ritual that, that the first cup is passed and then they have a passage that they say and then the second cup and the third cup. So when Jesus is with his disciples, here's what happened. He gets to the third cup in the Passover meal. And um, normally this is the cup of redemption. It was the idea that God was going to redeem Israel. And what Jesus does is something that's incredibly unusual. At that time, what Jesus does is as they get ready to drink of the cup, Jesus looks at them and, he's, and, and normally, here's what would happen. Normally, in a typical Passover meal, what would happen is Jesus would raise the cup and he would say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, for giving us the fruit of the vine. That's what was said every Passover, except this one. 
In the Passover before the crucifixion, Jesus, sitting with his disciples, gets to the third cup. And instead of saying, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, for giving us the fruit of the land, Jesus says, this is a new covenant in my blood. What he does at that moment is Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's making, if you will, a marriage proposal. I love you. I am willing to give my life for you. I want you to accept me in, on those kinds of terms. At that moment, I don't know what the disciples thought on that day. I mean, I, I don't know if they thought, you know what, he's, he's lost his mind. That's not what he's supposed to say. How come he's not saying what he's supposed to say? I don't know if they were so tired that it, it just kind of blew by them. But Jesus makes an incredibly bold statement at that point in the Passover meal. And so later, um, what happens is Jesus then makes this an institution for us as believers to be able to do. And Paul explains it in the book of Corinthians. I sent out an email this week, and I asked some of you to, if you could, define the wedding glass that you used when you got married. Um, I texted my wife yesterday. I said, hey, honey, I said, A, do we even have ours? And B, do you know where it is? And can we even find it? And she was able to find it for us. 30, almost 37 years ago this year uh, was the last time I drank out of this glass. Uh, this was a glass that was used at our wedding. Uh, it was a toast that we had, and it had grape juice in it back then too. And it was a toast that my wife and I made to pledge our love and our commitment and our faithfulness to each other. So I thought maybe that it would be fitting for this morning just as it's a reminder of the covenant that I made with my wife, as a reminder of the covenant that I have with God, and that, more importantly, that God has with me. So when Paul writes to the early church, one of the things that he says is he talks about this deal. And so at this point, this is what we want to do, a reminder of what we just talked about, the fact that we have been given the righteousness of Christ because of the shed blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And so, 1 Corinthians, it talks about this in chapter 11. It says, Then Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. So he took bread, probably would have been a flat kind of piece of bread, and it says that he broke it, and he took a piece of it, and he gave, and he gave thanks. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And then it says that in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's an incredible opportunity for us that we can remember this great sacrifice that he made for us, his body which was broken, his blood which was shed, 
So as we go into this week, let's honor him with our walk. Let's honor him with the way that we speak. So that our life, as we walk out into the world, they would see Christ in us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for willingly going to the cross. Thank you for dying in our place. Lord, may we never let it get old. And may we honor you in the way we walk and talk and conduct ourselves in the world this week so that the world may see Christ in us. These things we ask in your great and precious name. Amen. Have a great week. Lord willing, we will uh, see you next week.